NPR has a brand new way for curious kids and grown-ups to connect, look up, and discover the wonders in the world around them. Wow in the World with Mindy and Guy is a new podcast where kids and families can tap into the crazy cool things that are happening all around us every day. Find and share Wow in the World on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I talked with Terry Crews this week. He's Andy Samberg's co-star on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He played the president in Idiocracy. He was also the screaming muscle man in all those Old Spice ads. Before all that, Terry was a football player, not just like high school, college football. He played in the NFL for five years. Of course, that kind of thing can't go on forever. He retired in 1996, and it's always a weird transition. One day, you're getting VIP parking next to the Eagles Training Center. The next, you're rolling up to the L.A. Fitness by the Target. That's how it went for Terry Crews. I went to a gym, and I was like, I'm going to work out here. And they were like, okay, all right, that'll be $25 a month. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm going to work out here. And they were like, okay, that'll be $25 a month. And I was like, I've never paid to work out ever. They <laughs> were like, well, welcome to the real world, Mr. Cruz. It's $25 a month. And I was like, oh, damn. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Terry about his life in the NFL and in the entertainment industry. He's, I don't know how to put this, he's a giant muscle man. And when you're a giant muscle man, you get a certain kind of part. Terry works a lot, but he's also picky about what he does. A lot of people say, oh, Terry Crews does it all. No, you should see what I turned down. There was tons of stuff I turned down. There's ways to tell all kinds of stories, ways to do everything without it being exploitative. As soon as people stop being human, you have a problem. And my job as an actor and as a performer is to project humanity and to show you sides of humanity. Then I'll talk with Amber Tamblin. She just wrote and directed her first feature-length film. It's called Paint It Black. Before that, she was an actor for pretty much her entire life. She started at 12. She says that unlike people who take up acting as a grown-up, when you start as a kid, you almost don't choose to make it your life. Because when you act so young, when you start so young, you don't, there is no choice in it, you know? You're a child. In, in my circumstance, in my case, it just kept ha- kept going. It just didn't, didn't end. There wasn't a point at which I went, I'm going to think about this. You just sort of become an adult and keep doing it. Finally, I'll tell you about The Gap Band 4, The Gap Band's sixth studio album, Wall to Wall Bangers, Swear. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest is Terry Crews. As a linebacker out of Flint, Michigan, Terry Crews was picked by the Los Angeles Rams in the 11th round of the 1991 NFL Draft. In 1996, five years later, he played his last season with the Eagles. Then he took up acting. He ended up starring alongside Ice Cube in The Friday After Next. He played Chris Rock's dad on Everybody Hates Chris. Now he plays Sergeant Jeffords on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, one of my favorite sitcoms. 
His latest role is in Sandy Wexler, the new Adam Sandler comedy on Netflix. He plays a pro wrestler named Bedtime Bobby Barnes. He's a client of Sandler's character, Sandy Wexler, who's a showbiz manager. In this scene, he's signing autographs at a wrestling convention when Sandy stops by for a visit. You're the man, Bedtime. Is it, eh? I know you're going to take the title on Sunday. I'm going to make him go night-night. Ha-ha! <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to lose. You don't know that. Hang on, please. Yeah, I do know that. I got the script. Tsunami sits on my face until I tap out. I'm never going to be the champ. Okay, look. The good thing is... You're going to have a grown man sit on your face and the entire world is going to be watching. That's a positive. That's not a positive. It's a positive. <laughs> Terry Cruz, welcome back to Bulls. I thank you for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's really nice to see you again. I, um, I, I, from, I don't, I've never met Adam Sandler, but everyone I know who knows Adam Sandler really likes him. As an enormous Pacific Islander guy's butt approached your face... <laughs> Did you did you consider whether there was a length to which you would not go on behalf of Adam Sandler? Uh, you know, I I have no problem going all the way in. If he <laughs> if he if he had to do it, I, I would have endured it and done it because you know it's. I have to say, acting is a little bit like travel. You know, when you're on when you're in another country, you do things that you wouldn't do at home. You know, there, there are things that you go, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll eat that bug if I'm in Africa and I'm walking around. Hey, yeah, they, they're like, this is the native food. This is what you do. Now, at home, you would be like, that's unthinkable. With movies, you're not you. So for me, it's kind of an escape. I mean, I've done a lot of things that I would normally not do, but... I feel like one of the marks of your work is the extent to which you will commit to something. I, you know, I don't have any other speed. I just, I'm either all in or I'm asleep. And that's something I, I, I kind of learned in the NFL because it's the way to deal with fear. It's the way to deal with any apprehension. It's kind of like I don't like to dip my toe in because then I just won't go. Uh, it's either dive in. I remember, you know, when you when you're a special team player and you know you got to run 60 yards full speed into the biggest men you've ever seen, a wall of manhood, and you have to slam your head into that. If you break down, you're just going to run into the locker room. Like there's there's no you have to just go. And my big ability, even in the NFL, was just taking tremendous amounts of pain. So. When I looked at acting, it was a way of defeating any sort of apprehension. It's a way just go so far in that you you get lost. It's and I kind of find that's the trick with everything for me is to really you know there are times when I'm like okay I'm gonna clean this kitchen oh my god this kitchen is awesome it's, it's horrible it's terrible it's all these dishes everywhere and but all of a sudden once I focus and just go in like really say, okay, how clean can I make this kitchen? I mean, my wife is like, you're you're a bit obsessive compulsive about everything like that, but I don't have any other way. Because um, if I was going to halfway do it, I would just feel like I'm going to quit. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's always like all in or nothing. When you were in college, were you thinking about yourself as a career football player or somebody who was going to become an NFL player? Not, not at all. I mean, well, no. I knew I was going to play in the NFL, but football was not an end for me. 
it was always a means. Like, I had other plans. Even while I was playing in the NFL, I shot a movie, and it was terrible, and we were kicked out of locations, and it was it, it was a wild experience, but I loved every second. When you were here last, we talked a little bit about when you were playing in the NFL, and one of the things that you said to me was that you felt like, with the possible exception of some quarterbacks, every player in the NFL was in some way broken. Yes. Yeah. Like emotionally broken. Oh, yeah. And I wonder if you can play and succeed in the NFL without it being your entire world. I mean, it's such an such an insane thing. An amazing thing, too. Yeah, right. But an insane thing. Like, can you have one foot out of it while you're doing it? Well, see, I, this is my – once I got out and looked back in hindsight – this is why I wasn't a major star, because it wasn't the end for me. And I was good enough, but I wasn't really willing to do everything it took to be at the top. I mean, I just, I didn't care enough. Like, there, you know what I mean? You really have, like, now, let me tell you something. The reason why I'm a successful actor right now is because I care. Like, I'm willing to go there. Well, I have a question yeah. for you. I, everybody who plays professional sports, or I should say 90% of the people who play professional sports have to deal with something that is so bonkers to me. When you are, uh, when you become a professional athlete, you have dedicated a huge chunk of your life to this sport all the way into your early 20s and into your adulthood. Yeah. And when you enter the NBA or the NFL or minor league baseball, you realize that everybody else is better than you. Yes, yes. And I wonder what that was like for you because, you know, to get drafted in the NFL, you have to be a star in college. Right. But you were drafted in the 11th round, is I was that right? in the 11th round. Now, see, it was different for me. I, I had a different experience where, you know, I, I wasn't expected to make it. It was your when is he going to get cut kind of question. And I stayed around. And I remember seeing guys from SC and Notre Dame, and they would get their hearts broken because someone would tell them, you're not as good as you think you are. Where everything for me was a bonus. You got to understand, like, my whole life, is a am in bonus points, like, right now. Like, Flint, Michigan, coming from Flint, it's most of my friends are living lives that are way less than what they thought they would be living or there, there are a lot of people who I knew were, were in jail and a lot of people who are dead. And the expectations are very, very low. So when here I am, you know, household name, people, you know, it's worldwide, go everywhere in the world, people know who I am. And, it's, and my thing is, it's always been, wow, look at where I am right now. So what was it like for you, Terry, when you were, you know, I, you had always had music and art were huge parts of your lives, huge parts of your life from when you were a kid. But driving yourself hard enough to be an NFL player and to be a marginal NFL player, you know, to be the kind of guy who could get cut, who mm -hmm. always has to be looking over his shoulder because he might get cut. When it ended up happening, when it's when it became permanent and you realized you weren't going to play in the NFL again, what was it like to you to lose all of that stuff that you had been driving towards and all that stuff that, you know, to some extent you had bought into in order yeah. to get to do that. What was your life like? Major depression. You know, 
even on the bottom of the roster, you you have some glory. You know, you can go places. And, you can yeah. go somewhere and say, I, I'm an NFL football player. Yeah, and everybody was, oh, oh, oh. And they look at you and respect you. Terry, and you're you... the only NFL football player I've ever met. You, you know what I mean? And it's so exciting. It's, it's like, hey, you know. And But then I couldn't say that anymore. What, I'm, I'm going to give you one of the biggest examples. It was crazy. I went to a gym, and I was like, I'm going to work out here. And they were like, okay, all right, that'll be $25 a month. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm going to work out here. And they were like, okay, that'll be $25 a month. And I was like, I've never paid to work out ever. <laughs> they were like, well, welcome to the real world, Mr. Cruz. It's $25 a month. And I was like, oh, damn. And it hit me like solid. You are no longer that. And I remember just being totally depressed, totally down in the dumps because you you don't have that anymore, and you don't know if you're ever going to get anything that fulfills that space. Well, because it's such a – I mean, I've never done anything in my entire life that's nearly as difficult as one week of playing in the NFL. And I've never taken – I've never done anything that asks that much of me. Right, right. And when nothing is asking that much of you, and you're the kind of guy that you are, I mean, you're that kind of guy that throws so much into everything – not to have something to throw it into must have been a big deal. Well, I thought I was. I actually was telling my wife I want to. I want to get into boxing, and she was like, "Okay, you know, you survive one thing." And I just remember getting overweight, watching a lot of TV, eating a lot of snacks at night because it was emotional, very, very emotional. And one day, you know, my wife pinched my back fat. And I was like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? She's like, it's cute. I'm just like, what? I, and I, I'm, lo- I'm losing it. I'm losing it. Because in your mind, you think you're the same guy, but you're slowly losing control of your life. And I remember just hearing a, 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 a tape where it said, in tw- if you do something straight for 21 days, you will gain the habit. And so I decided to go to the gym for 21 days and, and stop eating late at night for 21 days. And that turned into 18 years. And I never stopped. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Terry Crews. His latest movie, Sandy Wexler, is on Netflix now. He also stars on Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Fox. How comfortable are you with getting older? I'm very comfortable with it. You're in your late 40s now. I'll be 49 this year. At some point, your hormones start to change, and you probably will be less of, at the very least, less of a muscle man. <laughs> and I can say, you're sitting across from me. At the moment, you are definitely a muscle man, <laughs> 100% muscle man over there. It's more important to me that I be in shape mentally. It just is. Now, I've never stopped being an athlete because it's fun. And for one, I get I get renewed energy from the workouts, like for me, my workouts are more spiritual than they are physical because it gets me in the right tone for the day. I have so much energy. I have to tell you, I have to burn off two hours, and then I can start a regular day. To me, And another thing is, is I'm not a bodybuilder. I'm not a guy who's like, okay, I'm going to get these arms right. I'm more so, I have to get my body ready for my job, for what I do. And this is as, as a performer. I realized to be really, really successful, I had to get my endurance up to where I could do three jobs at the same time. Do you have to or have you had to adjust that impulse 
to acknowledge the fact that you've got a big family and that, you know, working provides for that family financially, but it doesn't provide for that family in other ways. Well, yeah, but I, but again, I approach my family as if it was another gig, you know what I mean? Because you have to include all of that into the, into the mix, because if you leave that, you're really going to be messed up. And I did that before where it was family was just an okay thing. And, you know, they're going to get with it and when, when uh, was, while I chase my dream. When was that? This was, oh, my God. This was pretty much from football right into the early days of entertainment, you know. And this is when my marriage pretty much broke up because I was not paying attention to my, to me, to, to how I was treating my family, to my wife, to my kids. In fact, in fact I, I say this all the time, but... I was a, a guy who felt like he was more valuable than his wife and kids. I was totally like, look, in my house, it was the trickle-down theory. But the thing is, n- nothing really ever trickled down. I, it was just more of me. And my wife was like, I've had it. That's enough. I'm done. And all of a sudden, it hit me that it was like, yo, man, maybe it's me. Because I could easily blame her and say, oh, you just don't understand me. You don't understand men. You don't understand what it is. But I said, you know, maybe it is me. And I had that, that's when I had to stop the career and focus on the family. It seems like this is a continuing process for you. I mean, a, a year or so ago, you talked a lot publicly about being addicted to pornography, going into rehab. Um, that's something that obviously can affect your family. Oh, yeah, big time. And, and it was kind of a thing where... You know, you got to look at cause and effect. You know what I mean? And uh, a lot of times we, we're, we're dealing only with effects. But I realized that, you know, pornography wasn't the problem. It was the effect of a deeper issue. You know what I mean? And it was like, hey, man, when you believe as a man that you are more valuable than, than women it doesn't. It, it affects the way you think about. You just look at things as they're just property. I remember being in the NFL, and they would, you know, we would all go to strip club and all this whole thing. But if a stripper ever started talking about her kids or her life, I got bills. It's like, oh man, babe, babe, you, shh, please, quiet, you know, <laughs> because you know what? Because she's starting to become a real person. You don't want a human being. You want something that you can manipulate and you can control, and that's what pornography was. For me, it fulfilled that. Like, okay, yeah, you know, I can do that and whatever. But all of a sudden, I could see how people had less value to me. It was affecting the way I saw everyone. And I said, this is a problem. Believe you me, I've been in intense therapy, going through it, and still, still, constantly, constantly figuring out, opening up what makes me tick. When I read about your pornography addiction, I, the thing that I wondered about was so much of your work is about your body. Like, you are by far the world's preeminent comic nipple dancer. <laughs> Peck popping is now family entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> And all of those things take immense talent and skill, which you have. I mean, there's a lot of guys with muscles who aren't on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, one of the funniest shows on TV. But your work is it remains essentially in part about your body. 
And I wonder how you dealt with those feelings of like, on the one hand, I am trying to deal with engaging with people as people and not as objects Mm -hmm. and realizing that part of your work was as an object in part. Well, this is what I, that's a good question too, because I had to ask myself that, but what, so what, what I think is the, is the breakthrough and it's really, really wild. It's like kind of like that stripper analogy I told you about. Nudity is not pornography, but pornography is when you take the humanity out of something. Now, the good thing is me being Terry Crews and being, being characters, it's that I always get to display my humanity. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I'm peck popping and the whole thing, but you know that I'm a human being and you know that I'm emotional. I have feelings. I'm a person. And that's kind of how I tested a lot of different roles that came to me. There were different things where after I did the movie White Chicks, there were plenty of movies that came to me. They were like, oh, man, we want to have you in this. And you're in the bed with this with this girl. And, 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 and I was like, no, no, no. Because you can see some guy over there going, I don't want to see that. And you're like, dude, that's that's I'm an object there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I turned down plenty, plenty of roles. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, Terry Crews does it all. No, you should see what I turned down. There was tons of stuff I turned down. There's ways to tell all kinds of stories, ways to do everything without it being exploitative. As soon as people stop being human, you have a problem. And my job as an actor and, in, as, and as a performer is to project humanity and to show you sides of humanity. We've got more of my interview with Terry Crews. We'll be back in just a minute. Coming up, we talk about how childhood trauma can shape an acting career, even if you're, you know, a giant muscle man like Terry Crews. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Buck Mason, a clothing company based in downtown L.A., Buck Mason has simplified the way men shop, making modern American classics to complement any wardrobe. Buck Mason takes an architectural approach to clothing, crafting iconic staples from the ground up, like their best-selling Crew Slub t-shirt, featuring a signature rounded hem for a contoured slimming effect. Use code BULLSEYE at checkout for $10 off your first Crew Slub t-shirt at buckmason.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Terry Crews. He's on Fox's Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's also in Sandy Wexler, the latest Adam Sandler movie. Have you ever seen the movie Little Dieter Needs to Fly, the Werner Herzog documentary? I did. No, I didn't. It's a really amazing movie. I recommend it. It's been on my mind since I watched it on an airplane like six months ago. Okay. It's about this German-American pilot who flew in the Vietnam War and was shot down and became a prisoner of war. And that's Dieter, the little Dieter who needs to fly. And he went through a nightmarish prisoner of war scenario, more nightmarish than you could possibly imagine. Mm. And he, in the film, which was made in the 90s, they, they shoot in his house in Marin County, and he's talking to Werner Herzog, and you know he's a beautiful house, and he's was a he he when he returned home he was a hero, and you know he's had a successful career and so on and so forth. But he lifts up the floorboards of his kitchen and shows that he has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of food underneath the floor of his house because he 
simply cannot go to sleep without knowing that he will have food. Wow. Because of this experience that he went through. Wow. I wonder if a part of your drive is something like that, that it is about distinguishing yourself and earning a living for your family um, because of the pain that you went through as a kid. I believe that wholeheartedly. And again, it goes back to cause and effect. I've never been more helpless than watching my dad with all his strength, hit my mother in the face. And I'm, at, I'm five. And you want a protector. You want to jump in. But what are you going to do? This is a grown man. And he's the, not only that, he's like the, the, the example of all strength. He's basically God in your house. And you see your mother go down. And you don't know what to do. I remember there was one when they were fighting one time. I remember started I started to laugh. That now that's weird, and I felt guilty for laughing. But you didn't. I, it was all you don't know why you do what you do, and I think it's it's really weird because. And again, as people, we tend to only deal with effects. We only talk about where you are now. But there's always a reason. There's always something really, really deep. There's abuse there. There's all this damage there. And it's, I truly believe there's three things that really make you who you are. One is heredity. The other is environment. And then, but the third and most important is a decision. And you can't do anything about the first two. But that decision, man, when I discovered that magical thing, like, okay, I was born here. But I don't have to live here. And the decision to not have these things affect me, the decision to forgive. I mean, I had to forgive my dad. I had to come up. I mean, now, this I'm, I'm being, this being said, I also knocked him out. I mean, I had, me and him had a come to Jesus meeting, for real. He hit my mother one more time, but I was a grown man. And I beat his ass. And it did no good. When I tell you, I remember just sitting down and crying because I thought that was going to make me feel better. I thought, there I am. Here I am. This is the moment. I can protect her. I can do this. And he was beat up, and I didn't feel not one bit better. But then years later, I literally met with him, and I remember saying, I have to get over this. I have to forgive this man. And the only thing and the best thing I could think about, like, you know, you start thinking about ways to forgive and how you're going to do it. And I said, wait a minute. OK, what good thing did he do for me? I said, you know what? Without you, I would not exist. That's the good thing that you did for me. And I said, in fact, it's the truth is, if I had to choose my parents, I would choose you because I wouldn't be here. And he broke down. And we had the biggest hug. I mean, it was one. It was a literal, like a ten-minute hug. And let me tell you, that hug did more than anything. I, our relationship did more for our relationship than any other thing that had ever occurred in my whole life. Well, Terry, thank you so much for taking all this time to uh, come be here. This is good. Uh, you know, this is part of my therapy, man. Just talking. It's weird because you look back and go, oh, wow, that's good. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I'm always grateful to get to see you. Thanks, Terry. Thank you.
Terry Crews. Check him out in Adam Sandler's new film, Sandy Wexler, on Netflix. And also, we got the news earlier this month, Brooklyn Nine-Nine coming back for a fifth season on Fox. Very excited about that. One of my favorite shows. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Amber Tamblin. Amber's had a really interesting career. She's the daughter of the actor Russ Tamblin. She appeared in her first ever movie when she was 12. She starred for years on Joan of Arcadia. She was on General Hospital. Recently, she's been on Inside Amy Schumer a lot. She's also a poet, a real poet. She's had three books of poetry published. Her latest, Dark Sparkler, came out a couple of years ago. It features photographs by David Lynch. Now Tamblin's written and directed her first-ever feature-length film. It's called Paint It Black. It's based on the Janet Fitch novel of the same name. It tells the story of Josie, whose boyfriend Michael dies suddenly before the film begins. Josie, played by Alia Shawcott, grows closer to Michael's parents in the aftermath. But then things get complicated. In this scene, which takes place right after Michael's funeral, Josie's talking with Michael's dad, played by Alfred Molina. He loved you, Josie. Thought you were smart, original, very real. You said you, your dad drives a tow truck? Yeah. Yes. Is there a mother in the picture? My dad was a, was a fisherman out of Coos Bay, Oregon. Is this what Michael thought of me? Some kind of novelty? Real. It's another word for whore. Right? No. Real means real. He loved you. Yeah. Amber Tamblin, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I feel like there's a lot of death in your career lately. <laughs> like, That's not the to most put sinister laugh I could it, come but... up with right now. <laughs> <laughs> you, I mean, before you released this film, which is about the aftermath of a suicide, you wrote a book of poems that was about the untimely deaths of... Uh, real-life actresses, um, show business actresses, movie actresses. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, I suppose it is a theme. I hadn't really uh, fully considered that, but um, death is fascinating. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of life in death. Um, there's a lot of revival in death uh, in the experience of it and the aftermath of it. How long did you spend writing the book? Dark Sparkler took about seven years to write. Um, I think in total, it, it it went through many phases and iterations of itself, trying to find out what it was supposed to be. It sort of started as uh, poems about the deaths, but also the lives of child star actresses. I was really fascinated by, uh, you know, my kin, my own, people who started out very young, women who started out very young in the business and then grew up and sort of lost themselves and then met untimely deaths. And then it went from that, and it sort of went further into, well, just women in general. They didn't have to be child stars, but women who, who, who actresses who passed away sort of in their 30s. Um, and then it went even further into this sort of meta experience of um, 
what it felt like for me writing poems about dead actresses, about my dead peers, um, and sort of examining my life as a child actress grown up and also my own sense of feeling very lost and feeling very confused about who who I was and, and what I wanted to ultimately do besides being an actress. Did you feel like you had chosen to be an actress? No, I don't think there was ever a choice in it. And I think, you know, around the time that I started to write Dark Sparkler, the poems in there was the first time that I had ever thought about that question. You know, it's a, it's, it's a question that actors get asked all the time. And I've been asked so many times in so many interviews, you know, how old were you when you knew you wanted to start acting? And it's a question that you sort of go on to, you go into autopilot and answer it and say, well, when I was 11, I, you know, was in a school for the performing arts and then an agent came and you go, you have a story. And I remember in my early 20s, somebody asked me that in an interview, you know, how old were you when you knew you wanted to act? And it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, it just hit me that I had never considered that, um, that it was a choice. It just because when you act so young, when you start so young, you don't there is no choice in it. You know, you're a child in, in my circumstance, in my case, it just kept ha- kept going. It just didn't didn't end. There wasn't a point at which I went, I'm going to think about this. You just sort of become an adult and keep doing it. Did you ever think about something else? Oh, always. I mean, I've been a poet as long as I've been an actress, which is always really surprising to people. I think they assume that it's um, a hobby that I picked up at some point in my life, kind of like how a celebrity puts out a, you know, attempts to put out a Christmas album or something. You're a cookbook, maybe. Yeah, I think that that's what people have thought it was. But, you know, I grew up around a lot of poets and um, in Venice, California, there uh, in L.A., and um, was raised around a lot of poetry and poets and music. Um, So it's very endemic to me. I used to put out chapbooks when I was a kid, when I was, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, I was a teenager. You know, it was was something that people, for the most part, didn't really take seriously about me and and sort of, again, felt it was just a, a hobby. But I think Dark Sparkler was the... Uh, expulsion of their beliefs in my in who I was, but also my own doubts about myself, and uh, just sort of searching for what were the other things that I wanted to do, you know, which I knew I knew that I wanted to write movies. I knew that I wanted to be taken seriously as a writer. I knew I was a good writer. How to get past that hump of being seen as just one thing and only being taken seriously as one thing. It's scary. It's it's scary to jump into the unknown like that and to be yourself. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the actress and writer Amber Tamblin. She just made her debut as a director. Her movie's called Paint It Black. It's out now. Do you feel like you were able to find your voice or find a voice as an actress? I mean, I think that if you compare screenwriting or directing or writing poetry, they're all very direct creative expressions. Acting is a, a very much an interpretive creative expression. And a, mm-hmm. not not that directing or screenwriting are, aren't also collaborative or that you don't have an editor when you're a, when you're a poet. But it feels like a very different thing. And it feels like it must it, a much more difficult place to, you know, have a personal voice. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've said... In the past, and I'll say it again, that I feel acting is only partially yours. You know, it's only a piece of of you. And you can't control what the performance you gave 
turns into because you've got a director and you've got editors and then you've got a studio or you never get a studio so it never sees the light of day. And then even if you make something incredible, it could be bought by a distributor who then butchers it and changes it and turns it into something else. And I think I've I've probably experienced every possible version of the good and the bad of my of my industry as far as acting is concerned. But the writing of it, you know, there there was an empowerment for me in writing a book like Dark Sparkler or directing a film or writing a screenplay because I owned it. It belonged to me. Why do you think that metamorphosis was driven by thinking about women who had uh, been driven or driven themselves to death particularly? I think it comes with the isolation, with the loneliness, with, you know, whether I would read an interview by somebody like a Brittany Murphy, who was the catalyst for that book. Brittany was a peer of mine. We went on a lot of the same auditions. I remember such a distinct moment of going in for the movie Eight Mile and sitting in the waiting room with a bunch of people and she came out of the room and then I was called in next the audition room and I was called in next and we passed each other and we smiled and we never met though but there was a sense of now we all know what we're doing right we all know what this life is and how isolating this life can be so when she when she died I was I remember how quickly and how how downhill she went. And then there was all these stories about her, you know, having eating disorders and pill addictions and all these things. And then she also died in, in a sort of very mysterious way. And I remember reading in all the interviews that I read and studied about her, I found this thing that she was into writing poetry. That really got me. Because I felt like for all the women and all the women that I studied, there was an alternative universe for them to succeed uh, and to succeed beyond success. What celebrity or what success or what acting means. There were small, little small parts of them that I saw myself in. What if Brittany Murphy wrote incredible poetry? And I think in the process of studying her death, certainly, and oh God, there's just so many, so many women that went in a in a similar manner. I started to question and fear that I was like, oh, do I want to die? Is that what this is all about? And and the truth is, I was, but not the type of death we think about. I wasn't. It wasn't literal death. It was. Uh, I needed a rebirth. I needed to to be reborn in a in a. A mental way and a spiritual way. So I was actually, I was actually dying. And Dark Sparkler was uh, a funeral of of sorts, a celebratory funeral, Um, a way to say this person doesn't, is ceasing to exist and a new person is being born. We'll have more of my conversation with Amber Tamblin in just a minute. She's a new mom. She'll tell me why she thinks motherhood is kind of magic for real. It's Bullseye. From MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Have you heard Up First, the morning news podcast from NPR? Clear and concise. It's a quick update on the news you need to start the day. Wake up with Up First tomorrow morning by 6 a.m. Eastern Time on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter. If you're looking for top talent with ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Let ZipRecruiter's powerful technology match your job to the right candidates and use their simple dashboard to find the right hire. 
That's why 80% of jobs on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash first. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Amber Tamblin. She's an actor, a poet, and she just made her debut as a director. The film's called Paint It Black. So when you decided to direct a film, why did you want to direct this story about a young woman who is um, living in the aftermath of her partner's suicide? Well, I think much like my acting career, which was sort of accidental, I would say, the directing was accidental as well. I'd read the book maybe 10 years ago. Amy Poehler gave me a copy of the book. She's a funny lady coming up in the comedy world. You haven't heard of her yet, but you're going to she's going to blow up. She's going to be a huge star. You'll see that Amy Poehler. I'm familiar. She's no. she's the one from that <laughs> TV show. You'll on. be hearing all about her. You'll see. She's going to be big star. She's the one on she's the one on that Comedy Central show who said dolphins can suck it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sorry. you got I, it. <laughs> ever since she said dolphins can suck it, I just that was probably the highlight of my entire sophomore year of college or whenever that was. There's a T-shirt in there. Dolphin. She, she goes. Do you remember that one where it's like dolphins yes. are like taking over the? I don't even remember those UCB sections, sketches had the weirdest premises, uh, but I just remember yeah, but her. They're going, the best. Dolphins can suck it. Suck, suck it, dolphins. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, so Amy Amy gave me the book um, and said you have to read this just as a friendly, you know. Oh, here's a here's a something to read. Nothing nothing further than that. And um, and I read it and I was really struck by Janet Fitch's language in the book. Her her poetic language it struck a chord in the poet in me. I couldn't unsee the movie version of the book, which was not like any experience I had ever had before reading a book. It really was visceral for me. And then I sort of got this feeling of if I don't try to get the rights of this book and do something with it, someone else is going to do it and and ruin it. And so so began uh, a very a very long experience of trying to get the rights and get the movie made and, and all of that. And if, if, if there's anything to be known about me, I'm I'm very tenacious about those things and I don't take no for an answer once I've sort of become obsessed with something and I will spend a lifetime literally trying to get something achieved. Paint It Black was an example of that, um, of just thinking this has to get made and originally when I first finally got the rights, I was wanting to write it as a as a movie for myself, uh, thinking, you know, I, I don't remember the last time there was a great role like this for somebody my age at that time, my age was like early 20s, and I wanted to write something for myself. And then it was, you know, cut two years later, uh, we had there was another director attached, um, uh, who was the one that finally said to me after many, many meetings, in which I said, No, I don't think that I don't think that's the tone of what this movie is, or that's what this scene is. Here's the way I see it. And uh, she did me the grand favor of saying, you know, I think you I think you're missing the big point here, which is that you should be directing this film. And my first instinct was, no, 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 I don't have the experience for that. It was a big no. It was like, there's no way I'm going to do that. And she said, what are you waiting for? And I thought, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Why don't I do that? And then once I started to do it, I went, oh, I'm made for this. I, this is what I should be doing. I bet he never once took you to a decent restaurant. 
Mm. No. <laughs> we mainly just ate at home. <laughs> you poor thing. Michael couldn't boil water. <laughs> Michael was a great cook, actually. He had all these cookbooks. We even had this little garden with like herbs and stuff. Once he cooked a whole fish from the Chinese market with the head and the tail still on. Mm. We even ate the eyeballs and the cheeks. That's the delicacy. Do you think it's awful that I didn't know my own son any better? I don't think anybody knows everything about somebody. I thought it was really interesting that in this story, which is primarily driven by the woman who's lost her partner and uh, her partner's mother, that the boyfriend, while he appears in the story in, in flashbacks, is you know not that far from being a cipher. He is so not the subject of the film. Yeah. That the subject of the film is so specifically these two women. And I wonder if you made choices to make it clear that this film was a- about the women and not about the boyfriend who killed himself. Yes, very much so. Uh, I mean, while the story doesn't, the the book itself doesn't pass the Bechdel test, uh, I wanted to make a movie that sort of could, meaning that there were two women talking about a man uh, in this movie, that, that that was sort of the subject, the premise. But at the same time, I wanted it to feel like he almost didn't even matter. It didn't, they were so obsessed with, blaming each other over his death and and their obsession over each other and their blindness in a state of grief made it so that they could be arguing over a you know a doorknob like it wouldn't matter anymore what the subject matter was that they were obsessed over uh, all that mattered was their unhealthy relationship and i think you know when when i first wrote the script and i was taking it out to financiers uh, I got a, I got uh, through my agency. I got a lot of notes back of people saying we love the script so much. We just feel like there needs to be more of Michael in here, who's the young man who kills himself. And they and in the book, there's a lot of Michael in the book. You see a lot of flashbacks of him with Josie, who's the young woman, his girlfriend, the protagonist, and um, you really get a sense of their relationship and who they were. And like I said, when I read the book. Um, that wasn't the interesting part to me. The interesting part was the women, the two women and how they defined states of grief, how uh, they were sort of going down these rabbit holes of psychosis. And the whole thing, the whole book, once they started to go really crazy, felt like some amazing, intense acid trip of just their thoughts and how, how dark they could get. And I was fascinated by that and thought how great it would be to make a movie that could encapsulate that without having to use expository dialogue necessarily or or actually showing, you know, the relationship between Michael and, and Josie. So that was something that was really important to me. And I pushed really hard for years saying I refuse to write in a bunch of flashback scenes. There's a couple of them in there just for 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 taste. But it really, to me, that was not what the story was that interested me. 
You by no means have to answer this question uh, directly or otherwise, and, and we'll cut it out if you don't want to. But have you ever experienced the kind of blind grief that these two women are faced with in the film? I haven't. I have experienced some versions of this grief, uh, certainly not with a partner. And I think, you know, now as a new mother, it's not even a thought that I can graze or touch the idea of losing a child. And so you have these two women um, in the movie who are at such polar opposite experiences of their grief and in their and in their lives, really, I think that young love while that's incredibly painful, you'll get over that. It's possible in some in some version to lose a partner and be blinded by that and uh, and in so much pain, but to eventually heal in some way. And I think as a mother, you never heal from that. You never get over that. That's the sense that I got from the book too. Um, when you know. You really see Meredith, the mother, played by Janet McTeer. Um, you really see how awful she becomes, the character becomes in so many ways. So I haven't personally experienced that, but I'm, I'm an empathetic and uh, empathetic person, and I think I can feel what that would feel like. You became a parent like a month ago. Is it different than how you expected? Uh, yeah, it's a lot different. I mean, it's very challenging, um, very rewarding. It is everything that people say it is. Um, it's terrifying, but it's it's pretty it's pretty incredible. Um, I, I'm very much enjoying it. So, which is the part that's different from what you expected? You expected that it would be a cakewalk, but unrewarding. I expected I was going to sort of disappear creatively that my child was just going to become I mean and it's so new anything could happen but um, I definitely felt there was going to be a loss of myself a loss of the creative part of myself all the stuff that I've worked so hard for in the last 10 years um, was going to disappear and in fact it's the opposite I think I feel more creatively flush than I've ever felt before, um, writing more poems. I was also pregnant during this election, which was um, I went to the Women's March, eight and a half months pregnant. Um, you know, it was it was really intense. I traveled around for Hillary Clinton for the better part of a year to, to over 25 states and um, all, all while pregnant. Um, and it was a very, very intense experience. So I, I feel like there's so much for me to write and do creatively now and think about and think about certainly how women are treated in the country and all over the world in a sort of juxtapositional light with the fact that I now have a daughter um, and to see the way in which Hillary Clinton was treated uh, during the campaign and then think about that in context and connection with my daughter and how how hard it is um, to come back full circles, everything we just talked about, but to grow up and figure out who you are, especially as a woman. I went through it and, you know, I think about my I think about my daughter and try to think about ways in which I can make it better and easier for her. I, I have a baby that's a couple months old. Oh, nice. And my wife for since before she was pregnant had been planning for the publication of her first book in the spring. Uh-huh. And it was like the uh, the prospect of being responsible for both the 
biggest deal of her creative life, which is like, oh, I co-wrote a book that's actually going to be available in bookstores. Right. And then just like the responsibility of, oh, the baby eats from my body. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Like, it's not even just like who's going to take care of the baby, but like, you know what I mean? Oh, it's it's so real. It is the thing that makes me think like, oh, I was a feminist before. Now I'm now that I've had a kid and now that I've seen now that I understand how hard women work, how present they are, how much they have to take on. I am so much more a feminist, but also just in awe of women and especially mothers, but in awe of women in general in an even bigger way because it's it is that and it's and it's you it can't be understood how intense that experience is, but also how empowering and powerful it makes you feel. It's the closest understanding to and, and belief in God that I've ever had. How's that? Meaning, meaning that I that to think that that this is what women can do and can do with their bodies and the whole idea of breastfeeding and everything that comes with that and how much women are capable of doing it makes me think that there has to be a higher power. There has to be something that helped create this because women are so amazing. So it's it's as someone who's never really believed in God, it's made me think that that women are kind of godly, if that makes sense. And somewhere somewhere, someone's going to be really pissed that I just said that. But um, I really don't care. Really don't care. Are you worried that while you're promoting your film, you'll just be really sleepy and uh, make some <laughs> terrible mistake? What if I just hit my head on the mic right now and passed out and started snoring? <laughs> I'm, I'm asking that question only because that fear has been gripping me personally for the last eight weeks. Like I'm yeah. going to do something so awful on microphone. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, – I take naps where I can on the subway. I mean uh, you, know, you, get the, you get the sleep where you can as it were. Well, Amber Tamblyn, I'm so grateful that you took all this time uh, to be on Bullseye. Thank you so much for doing it. Thank you so much for having me. Amber Tamblyn, catch Painted Black right now. It's in limited release. We'll have showtimes for you on our website. Just go to the Bullseye page on MaximumFun.org. Every week we wrap up Bullseye with a pop culture recommendation from me or host. It is the outshot. Not a lot of R&B bands made it through disco and came out the other side. Some of those sort of one-man band situations did, like Rick James and Stevie Wonder. A few vocal groups like The Whispers. A couple of funk bands, Lakeside, Cameo. But a lot of bands bit the dust either when disco hit or when they couldn't find their way out of it. One of the biggest urban acts of the 80s came out of the smoldering rubble of the 70s. From Oklahoma, via L.A., named for Greenwood, Archer, and Pine Streets in their hometown, Tulsa. Three brothers named Wilson, Charlie, Ronnie, and Robert. The Gap Band.
They were a 12-piece originally. Laid down a couple of go-nowhere funk records in the 70s. No charting singles. But then they found their way to a nightclub owner and producer in L.A. named Lonnie Simmons. Simmons signed them to his label, Total Experience Records. He named it after his club on Crenshaw in L.A. First thing, Simmons dropped nine guys from the band. Everyone except the Wilson brothers. He cleaned up their sound a little bit, and then the four of them got to work making hits. The Gap Band's first record with the new label was called The Gap Band. That was also the name of their last album for the old label, but it didn't matter. This was a new start. They had four top ten R&B hits in the first three albums on Total Experience, but it was the next album that was their masterpiece. Gap Band 4 is a shiny diamond. It's as buffed up as anything on the R&B airwaves in 1982. But it's also deeply funky. If Parliament Funkadelic were mostly fueled by weed and psychedelics, this new, shiny 80s funk was undoubtedly cocaine music. Fierce and lush. Light and bouncy on the high end, deep and heavy on the low. Songs like You Dropped a Bomb on Me and Early in the Morning are driven by truly nasty bass work. Robert Wilson's bass guitar and Charlie Wilson's keyboards double-teaming under the melody. It's like a tractor beam of funk. But they also had something else, a secret weapon, Charlie Wilson's voice. It had that light, athletic quality that R&B radio wanted, but it had the richness of a soul singer, too. Charlie Wilson could take his band from a Parliament-style funk track, like Talkin' Back, to a straight-up light FM jam, like Stay With Me, the gorgeous, plain and simple ballad, Seasons No Reason to Change. Girl, I love you more and more each day And each and every day I pray that you The record is wall-to-wall bangers. Literally every song on Gap Band 4 hit the radio. Every single one. I want to be clear. It's a very record industry-ish album. A&R to within an inch of its life. Every song laser targeted at an audience segment or an open slot in a DJ's playlist. But it works. Because the Gap Band could actually do it all. A great band, a great singer great songs, and a sound that felt light and funky at the same time. It's like a magic trick. Ooh, like my mind. 
The band had hits, great hits, after Gap Band 4. They never got back to that height. In fact, it got so bad that in the 90s, Charlie spent a few years homeless, literally living under a bridge, playing piano once in a while in a thrift store, smoking crack. There's good news, though. He's been clean for quite a while now. He's become a kind of elder statesman in hip-hop. The Gap Band still tours, and Charlie's recorded with Snoop Dogg and Kanye West, who call him Uncle Charlie. It's a beautiful resurgence for a great band. But as wonderful as that is, they'll never top 1982, the year they perfected that magical mix of light and funky, the year they dropped that megaton bomb. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking beautiful MacArthur Park in Los Angeles, California. Park update this week. Lake's starting to turn green. I guess that's an algae bloom. Though, honestly, I couldn't tell you. I'm no biologist. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by their label, Memphis Industries. Our thanks to both of them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out that Bullseye page on Facebook. Got the best from this week's show and lots, lots more culture news and cool stuff that past guests have been up to and dumb jokes from the Internet, videos of animals doing dumb stuff. I mean, that's evergreen, right? Anyway, it's at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorner. Just search for it on Facebook and click like. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts. Have a signature sign off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 